Well, let's come to uh, God's word this morning to hear from him, to be instructed by him. And we look to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning. We, uh, we've had a break from Revelation for the last few weeks. And so I believe next week Gerald will continue uh, our study in Revelation. But we'll look today at the third sermon in our series on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 to 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under the seat you can grab. And it's on page 656 of that Bible. And this is the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made For myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all of it was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is God's word, and let's ask God for his help in understanding it. If you would, lift up your hearts and bow your heads with me. God, our Father, we come to you. And we know that your word brings us life and it gives us meaning and it helps us understand the purpose of our existence. Lord, we pray for understanding. There are parts of the Bible that that we wrestle with that are difficult to understand. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us clarity when we study your word. Lord, we know that we are so dependent on you for that understanding. And so we pray that you would use the scriptures to... um, open our hearts and minds to the things of God and that we might um, find comfort for our distress and so that we might be challenged uh, and corrected for the ways that we have um, gone astray. And so we um, pray for that understanding this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some I don't know if anyone here has... Um, visited Pennsylvania before, but there's a place in Pennsylvania, eastern side of the United States, called Amish country. 
And in Amish country, people, they don't drive to the shops. They take a horse and a buggy. Even Walmart, it's interesting, even Walmart has a little uh, set of stables for Amish people to park their horse and buggy when they do their shopping at Walmart. And um, if you ever get the chance to visit Amish country in Pennsylvania, it, it's almost like going back to the 1850s. Uh, everyone in, in Amish country um, wears, the women wear bonnets, the men wear long pants and button-up shirts. Uh, the Amish don't use electricity. And this religious group lives a very sober and, and plain life. There's something very interesting about the Amish that a lot of people don't know. Uh, when Amish children turn 16 years old, in some Amish communities, the parents encourage them to leave home and to, to embrace the world. And in some Amish circles, kids at 16, year olds, 16 years old will ditch the bonnets and ditch the buggies, and they'll just go live wild. Uh, they'll experiment with drugs and alcohol, and, and they won't uh, deny themselves anything that they desire. And there's a word they use to describe this. They call it rumspringa. Uh, it's a practice where, where they go off and live wild lives. And then at the end of that experiment, they come back. And um, they put the bonnet back on. And then they have to make a decision. Am I going to leave the Amish community and live within the world? Or am I going to stay in the Amish community? The experiment is supposed to show them that life in the world isn't what it's all cracked up to be. Now, just a disclaimer. I'm not recommending this as a parenting strategy. <laughs> but I share this tidbit of information with you this morning because uh, it relates to our text and Solomon's experiment with pleasure. As Solomon ex uh, conducted an experiment of his own, we read that in verse 1. He says this, look at verse 1. I'm going to test pleasure. I'm going to see if there's any good in it. I'm going to see if it's all that it's cracked up to be. I'm going to see if I, by indulging myself, if I can find the true meaning of life. And so we see in verse 3 that he, he does that. He goes on this experiment. He cheers himself with wine. We read also that he embraces folly. And then we read in verse 3 that while he embraces folly, his mind was still guiding him with, with wisdom. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think what verse 3 is saying is this. He indulged, he embraced, and he evaluated. He indulged in all the pleasures that life had to offer. He embraced foolishness as he did that. And then as he was doing that and after he did that, he evaluated. Was this good or was this bad? He indulged, he embraced, then he evaluated. Kind of reminds me of the time when I went bungee jumping. I indulged in excitement. I embraced foolishness. And then as I was falling down uh, on the bungee rope, I said to myself, this is not wise, this is not wise, this is not wise. And so as, as I embraced foolishness, I evaluated it with my mind. This is not wise. The Solomon experiments with pleasure. He is, he is using his wisdom to reflect on the nature of his actions. And he concludes that these things that he thought might bring him joy or happiness or pleasure, they just bring him a feeling of 
emptiness and aloneness. Now, there are two points I want to make this morning. And the first point is that uh, Solomon pursued pleasure. And then the second point is that we are called to pursue Christ. So two points this morning. And we see this pursuit of pleasure in verses 1 to 11 here. In verse 1, we see him laughing. He's out with a few friends, perhaps. In verse 2, he's, he's having a drink. And I need to say uh, that the Bible does not condemn alcohol. Okay, uh, Alcohol in and of itself is not sinful. Nowhere does scripture condemn alcohol. Jesus and his disciples drank wine. Some churches use wine in communion. And uh, many of you probably used alcohol this morning when you put sanitizer on your hands. There's a right use of it. It's a good gift. And Christians, though, we, we do debate on this issue. We've debated for centuries on the use of alcohol, uh, coming to different conclusions. Some believe that it's okay to drink in moderation, and others refrain and they say, no, that's not wise. And so this is a secondary issue for us as Christians. And in our congregation, I know that there will be a lot of different views on this issue. So, and I think throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll, we'll touch on this subject a little bit more. But what I want to say this morning, and I think we can all agree on this, is that the Bible does condemn the misuse of alcohol. It condemns alcohol being used um, uh, in, uh, not in moderation. And we've seen the effects of alcohol uh, in, in Australia. Uh, we see how it rips apart families and destroys relationships. In 2013, the Australian government reported that, um, that alcohol, the social costs of alcohol abuse in Australia were estimated to be in excess of $15 billion. So it's, like, it's not even Christians that recognize that um, alcohol can be devastating. But even the, the secular world recognizes that there are harmful effects to the abuse of alcohol. And there are a lot of reasons why people might drink. Some just enjoy the taste of beer or wine. Others do it occasionally as a way to celebrate. And some do it because they're bored. And others do it because they want to be liked by their friends and they're given to peer pressure. Um, we see here that Solomon, look at verse 2, drank to cheer himself up. In chapter 1, he reflects on life. He tells us that life is hard. Life is toilsome. Life is tiring. It's filled with disappointment. And so many people try to find relief from the pain that we experience in this world. They try to find that in alcohol. Alcohol does two things to the brain. It um, temporarily increases your endorphins, those chemicals that make you feel happy, and it temporarily inhibits pain. And so when life is painful and tiring and, and sad, people turn to a substance, a drink, a kind of escape, because what does it do? For just a moment, it gives me a little bit of relief from all the pain and futility that we see in the world. But alcohol is not the only thing we misuse. We misuse all kinds of things. We misuse money. We're good stewards of our money. 
We waste our money. We hoard our money. We misuse laughter. We use laughter to mock people, to belittle people. Uh, We misuse sex. We use it to gratify our desires, to treat people as objects. We misuse food. We eat poorly. We eat excessively. We eat wastefully. We misuse relationships. We manipulate people for our own ends. We misuse our words when we gossip and, and slander. And so what I'm trying to show you is that it's not just alcohol that people misuse, but there are, are all kinds of things that, that we misuse in life. Often I see at the gym on my one visit per year, <laughs> a person using the machines. And um, actually that person is me. And, and they're using it the wrong way. And when I use the machines the wrong way, usually one of the employee comes up to me and he says, now this is how you use it. You need to, you're misusing this machine. And then he shows me how to use it properly. And, um, and we, we need help. We need instruction. We need to be taught how to use God's good gifts. And that's what the scriptures do for us. Uh, they teach us how we are to, they teach us who created the world and, it, and the scriptures also teach us how to enjoy that creation. They show us God's intention for marriage. They show us God's intention for sex and for money and for friendships and for work and even for alcohol. And as Christians, as we listen to the voice of Christ in the scriptures and we sit at his feet and learn from his word, we come to better understand the purpose of God's gifts and how we might use them. Now, a second point here, misunderstanding pleasure. Look at verse 4. Solomon's pursuit of pleasure takes him to his palace in verse 4. Now, some of you uh, will be flying out to Jerusalem in November with Gerald, and I'm still waiting for the invite. Uh, Someone has to stay back and preach, so I don't get to go. That's okay. When you get there, you'll notice this big dome uh, in the Jerusalem skyline. And it's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim mosque that's been there for the last thousand years. And next, uh, and before that dome was there, that's where Solomon's temple sat. And next to Solomon's temple was Solomon's palace. The interesting thing about the palace is that the palace was much bigger than the the temple in respect to square footage. I think there's a picture here. So you have the temple on your right and you have kind of the palace complex on your left there. And 1 Kings chapter 7 lists the measurements of, of the palace. It's about twice as big as the temple. And it says something about Solomon, doesn't it? about the kind of empire that Solomon was building. Solomon was building an empire, and his empire was focused on himself, on his own expansion, on making his name great. His property had two houses and a throne room and this, uh, this massive covered porch. And it was all built from imported cedar and, and costly stone. And so, you know, he had this, this kind of massive empire We read about that empire here in Ecclesiastes 2. Look at verse 4. We'll go back to the previous slide. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 4. Speaking of his empire, Solomon says, I made great works for myself. 
I built houses, I planted vineyards, I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees, that's in verse 4. I built pools and canals to water my gardens. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who has ever lived before me. I also gathered silver and gold, and I had concubines. Look at verse 8. I had my own personal singers, he says. Yeah, he had his own band to come sing to him whenever he was bored. From a material point of view, Solomon really had everything that he could have ever wanted or desired. And he was uh, constantly entertained endlessly and all the time. This description of his life makes me think of our society. We don't live that much differently than Solomon, do we? Many of us have large homes, gardens, possessions. We accumulate wealth. We accumulate property. We enjoy the finer things in life. We enjoy good food and good drink. We have our favorite restaurants that we go to. Uh, We indulge. We are endlessly and constantly entertained, aren't we? I remember going to this wedding. And around me at this wedding was, you know, food, good food, um, drink, dancing, a little slideshow, a cake. There was so much to, to capture your attention. And at that wedding, I remember seeing a table of people. And while this was all going on, they were sitting on their phones playing the game. A whole table of people. There's entertainment everywhere and we're still bored. We live in a society where there's, there's TV screens on every single corner. In Canada, I'm ashamed to say that they've started putting TV screens above the urinals in the bathroom. Like, who needs that? Everywhere you go, there's something to entertain you. And, and yet, people are still bored. And, and they try to satisfy their boredom by spending and by shopping and accumulating toys and things to be used for their own pleasure. And why do they do it? For so many people, it's because they feel like it gives their life meaning. And then as they they have this very meaningful life of of holidays and and vacations and toys, they, they post it for everyone to see. I was struck by this story told by Chuck Colson. He said this, Naples, Florida, uh, an absolute nirvana for all golfers. And all the CEOs of major corporations, they all go to retire in Naples, Florida, because there's something like 27 golf courses and miles of sparkling beach and the best country clubs. And, um, and Colson says this, these golfers... They start measuring their lives by how many golf games they can get in. And he said to, in one encounter with a golfer, he said this, do you really want to live your life counting up the number of times that you chase a little white ball around those greens? And they kind of chuckle because in six months they've realized how boring their lives are. See, the object of their life is to achieve money and power and pleasure. In, 
in North America, there's a little bumper sticker. Um, bumper stickers are those little stickers that you put on the back of your car. And there's one that says this. You'll see it everywhere you go. It says, uh, whoever has the most toys when he dies wins. The question is, do you really? Do you win in the end? If you have the whole world, but you have not Christ. Look at verse 10. Solomon says that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now just let me summarize what he's saying here. He's saying, in this experiment with pleasure, I worked hard and I played hard. And this is uh, the way most people think in life. You work hard and then you enjoy the fruit of your labor. If I study hard, then I might be able to get a good job. If I get a good job and I work hard at my job, I might get a promotion. And then if I get a promotion, I'll make lots of money. And once I make lots of money, I'll be able to buy all the things that I want and spend my money and enjoy my life. If only I can travel the world. If only I could uh, get that girl. If only I had lots of friends. If only I could retire early. If only I had a husband or a wife who really appreciated me. If only I had this or I had that or I had the other thing. Then I would find true happiness. And this is the message of Western society. And we are spooned, spoon fed with this message. It's in the Disney movies. Once you meet your Prince Charming, you'll be happy. Have any of you met your Prince Charming yet? Are you happy? It's in all the advertisements. <laughs> Trying to convince you that if you buy this product or that product or the other product, you'll be happy. If you take this pill, if you go on this diet, if you buy this book, if you join my pyramid scheme, you can talk to me about that after the service. <laughs> You'll find happiness. But will you find happiness in those things? And I think if Solomon were in the room with us right now, he'd say, I've been there. I've done that. And no, it won't give you happiness. In verse 11, he concludes, look at verse 11. He concludes that it was all vanity. And we see this Hebrew word again. We've studied it over the last three weeks. It's the Hebrew word hevel, which means smoke, dust, mist, or vapor. He's saying that all the pleasure he experienced was hevel. It was vapor, it was dust, it was mist. It lasted for just a moment. And then it was gone. And so it is with these, these pleasures that we experience in life, we we grab hold of them. They give us a moment of satisfaction. They give us, some of them even give us five or ten years of satisfaction. Twenty years of satisfaction. But like smoke, poof, they vanish. One of my favorite moments in life was um, Costco in the 90s. And me and my little brother, we used to rule Costco. And we used to run around uh, from aisle to aisle uh, testing all the different foods because they had these little taste testing stations. We'd go around uh, testing them. And as fun as that was, 
I would often leave Costco with a sense of hunger in my stomach. Because that's what a taste tester does. It gives you a taste of something, but it leaves you wanting more. It's a marketing strategy. That's why they do the taste testers, so that, that you'll taste the food and then you'll buy their product. Throughout life, we taste and we test all kinds of things. We taste and test good things and we taste and test bad things. Some offer us momentary satisfaction. Some offer us you know, two or three years of satisfaction, but they never truly satisfy us completely. And so we run from station to station trying to find satisfaction in those things, always feeling hungry and always wanting more, trying to find happiness and contentment and joy in material things. We attain it for a time, but then we lose it. And then we go looking for another thing. And that leads me to a second point here, which is the good news of Christ, pursuing Christ. I'm reminded of a true story. It's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 4. And maybe if you want to turn there with me, you can. And I'll just paraphrase John chapter 4 as we work through it here. John chapter 4, looking at verse 7. It was about 12 o'clock noon. A Samaritan woman uh, makes her way uh, to the town well in the middle of the day. Most women went to fetch their water early in the morning or late at night to avoid the heat of the day. But this lady, she went to visit the well in the middle of the day when it was most quiet, probably because she was the object of public shame. You see, this woman had been married five times, and the man that she was living with now was not even her husband, it was her boyfriend. See, this woman had gone from man to man to man, from relationship to relationship, trying to find someone who would meet her needs and who would give her that sense of happiness and joy, and she could never find it. And Jesus meets her at the well. And in this encounter, he shares with her an important truth. And he says this to her in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, everyone who comes to this well, whoever drinks of this water, will come back thirsty. That's how water works. You, you pour, you drink, you're refreshed, and it takes maybe, what, one or two hours until you're thirsty again. But Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks the water I offer them will never be thirsty again. For the water I give, he says, is living water. On a hot summer day, a cool glass of water, even a, a can of Solo, will quench your thirst maybe for an hour or two hours. After a long, hard day at work, you know, a meat pie might fill that void in your stomach for one or two hours. A day at the water park might bring you joy for a few hours. Pleasure is like water. It might satisfy you for a moment, but it won't satisfy you forever. But when Jesus speaks when Jesus speaks of thirst here in John 4, he's not talking about the parched feeling that we have every now and again. He's speaking of the thirst that is in every human heart. The longings that all of us have as people to find meaning and purpose in life. 
This was Solomon's longing. He was searching to find the meaning of life and he was doing it by indulging himself in pleasure. It was the longing of the Samaritan woman. She was trying to find the meaning of life in, in companionship. It's the longing of the backpacker who goes from country to country, from hostel to hostel, trying to find meaning and purpose for life. It's the longing of the party goer and of the, the addict and of the alcoholic and of the thrill seeker who goes from one experience to the next, from one high to the next high, trying to find meaning and purpose in life. Like I said last week, the world looks for answers in all of the wrong places. As some go to books, some dig their heels into work, some go to the bar, some look to money, others look to relationships. But Christ Jesus here in John 4 is saying, if you wish to ever have eternal satisfaction, if you want that joy, if you want something that won't die or expire or waste away, Jesus says you need to come to me. Because what Christ offers is eternal. And it's not hevel. It's not like smoke or vapor or mist. See, if you're like me, you have a garage full of stuff and things you want to hold on to and a bank account and maybe a favorite cafe and a lounge, a lounge chair with an imprint of your body on it. And Solomon had a palace. And some of us have empires. Some of us own businesses. And we have these vast empires. But let me ask you this. What if you lose it all tomorrow? What will you have? You know, tomorrow, if I lose, I won't be losing much, but if I lose my garage full of stuff and, and that sofa with the imprint of my body on it, even if I lose that, I have Christ. On my deathbed, when my senses are fading me and all my memories are going, and the last will and testament is sitting on my bedside table, even as I'm about to lose it all, I can say, I will have Christ. And I pray that he keeps me to that day. And as Christians, you have Christ. And you have him now. And you have the abiding presence of his spirit in your life. And you have the word which gives meaning and purpose to your existence. And he teaches us, the scriptures teach us, that life is not about gratifying your desires. The purpose of life is not to stimulate, to stimulate yourself endlessly with adrenaline and experiences and fun and excitement. The purpose and meaning of life, the Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. First, before we ever please ourselves, our goal is to please our Savior. And then once we've pleased our Savior, we're called to serve others. And then once we've served others, we're called to find our delight and our joy and our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Because this is the most important relationship that we can ever have. We have a relationship with the God, the same God who created the Milky Way. And that's a good relationship that we can enjoy. And he calls us his sons and daughters. We are children of the king. And as children of the king... Does he not offer us a better kingdom? A kingdom that isn't my garage or my collection of books, but 
a kingdom that is eternal, that doesn't fade, that doesn't perish, that will last forever. And there is something satisfying about that. So knowing Christ, there's things that are satisfying now and there are things that will satisfy us in the future when Jesus returns. Solomon pursued pleasure. We're called to pursue Jesus Christ. And now as I conclude, let me ask one final question. What does this really mean for us here this week? Should I tomorrow or should you tomorrow go auction your house, sell your car, move to Pennsylvania and drive a buggy, wear a bonnet? No. Is there a place for pleasure as a Christian? Yes, of course. Because pleasure is something that God created. God, in Genesis 1, designed the human mind, the human emotions. He created our face so that that when something is humorous, uh, we'd smile. He gave us those feelings of joy and happiness. He created the intimacy that existed between Adam and Eve. And the delight that they had in each other as a married couple. He designed the stomach to be satisfied after a good meal. He designed, he created us fearfully and wonderfully. And then after he created us, he called it good. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says about Jesus. He was made like us in every single way except in respect to sin. Meaning he experienced those same joys, feelings of joy and happiness and and anticipation that we feel. Our Savior experienced the the company of friends and good food and he celebrated weddings and he attended festivals. So being a Christian doesn't mean we try to avoid doing things that bring us joy and pleasure. But it means that we experience pleasure in the right way, that that we don't misuse pleasure. We use it the way God intended it, that we don't misunderstand pleasure. That we see um, God's purpose for pleasure. And that as we receive every good and perfect gift that comes from above. What do we do with that? We give thanks to God. Just as Jesus Christ himself gave thanks. And I think I'm going to leave you with these words. They were penned by G.K. Chesterton. And I think they just really summarize everything that I'm saying here. And he says this. You say grace before meals. Okay, all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera and before I play and before I open a book. And I say grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and dancing. And I say grace before I dip the pen in the ink. And so, what is the point of pleasure? The point of pleasure is to recognize that it comes from the creator and that it is good and that it is to be used in the right way. And we are called as Christians to give thanks in all circumstances as we enjoy God's good gifts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for every good and perfect gift from above that comes from above. We thank you most of all for the gift of life Uh, the bread of heaven, the living water that comes to us from above, who gives meaning and purpose to our lives. Lord, um, help us to be preoccupied 
with pleasing you before we ever please ourselves. And Lord, as we live this life and we experience all of your good gifts, and they are good, would you help us to give thanks in all circumstances that you might be glorified in and through us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.